The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined once again by Alexandra Marshall from Australia. She's now editor of the online Australian Spectator. She writes on liberty, philosophy, and geopolitics. She also contributes to Sky News um, and Rebel News, among other publications. We last spoke on the cyber pandemic and your fantastic article, Digital Darkness. Uh, Alexandra, how is the Great Reset going down under? Yikes, is all I can say, but uh, not as badly as it's going in Canada, let's put it that way. So Australia is sort of like a miniature version of the chaos that you guys are seeing in Canada. And we had a massive protest, the largest that we have ever seen in Canberra outside our Parliament House, basically chanting sack them all to our government because people have had enough of our politicians. We've had enough of our COVID health orders. In particular, the, the trick with Australia is that we've got different states with different health orders, so it's much harder to keep up with, uh, like, Western Australia where you've got strict, triple-vaccinated uh, vaccine passports and everything when you've got New South Wales with a bigger population sitting there with almost no restrictions, like, well, the world hasn't ended. And that's causing a huge amount of friction between the populations because we've got a competitive environment when it comes to basically the truth and COVID facts. So the Great Reset is struggling in a democratic environment to keep its narrative alive. I, I know I was going to ask you about Russia, but let's just continue on that uh, line of thought. <laughs> Speaking about Australia and Russia, it seems like, you know, Trudeau out in Canada, uh, Fidel Trudeau or Justin Castro, whatever you want to call him, um, he saw what was going on in Australia and New Zealand, and he just wanted to kind of uh, one up you guys. Uh, he's like, yep, let's do that, but much, much bigger. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, he's gone full Pinochet or Castro, whichever flavor or form of authoritarianism uh, you prefer. And so it's it's really astounding, though, for us to watch this. It's like uh, it's 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 gone full totalitarian. It's like 1973 Chile or, 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 or whatever. Like, no joke. It's no exaggeration. So, uh, I mean, what are your thoughts on Canada uh, as well as Australia? Like you said, they're struggling now. Um Canada, they seem to be advancing pretty well. Uh, so, I mean, what are your thoughts there? Uh, well, first of all, I always thought that Justin Trudeau being Castro's kid was just one of those random internet conspiracy theories. And then you look at it for more than five minutes, like, oh, maybe not, or maybe not. Um, yeah, anyway, so as far as Australia goes, what's interesting in Sydney, at least in New South Wales, is I've been shopping for houses and almost nobody is wearing masks, even though it's a requirement. Almost nobody has any like no one's afraid of COVID, no one's thinking about it. There's a few little crazies there wearing double masks and a face shield, but they are by far the minority. So the, as COVID has spread through um, Sydney and people have had it, the health orders are losing their impact. If people don't fear COVID, they refuse to follow the health orders. That's basically, that's all it is. And so as people refuse to follow the health orders, um, Dominic Perrottet, our Premier, has had to keep reducing them because he can't maintain them, he can't police them. So what I'd say to places like Canada is if you stop being afraid of these things, if the laws lose their fear that's backing them, politicians, even someone as crazy as Trudeau, will have to start walking them back. And we've seen, we've got like a miniature Trudeau in uh, Victoria by Daniel Andrews, and even he has yesterday had to announce a reduction of most of his health orders because he is struggling to keep control of this narrative. So, dear Canadians, if you're freaking out, have faith that uh, if you stop giving these rules power, politicians have to walk them back because at the end of the day, they want to hold government and they want to remain in power and they will change their policy to do that. 
Um, yeah, sorry. A message from our sponsors. The Nomos app will help you survive COVID-1984 and the Great Reset. Nomos is a time bank that can be used by communities anywhere in the world. You just need to talk people into using it. For example, if you go to your barber for a 30-minute haircut, your barber receives 30 minutes in his time bank. He can then use that time to pay for an appointment with the doctor. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in both English and Spanish. Hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the cashless society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. Also, if you need health insurance that covers you wherever you may roam, check out my friend James Guzman's Borderless Health Insurance. One of the great things about living internationally is saving money on health care, but private care overseas can be expensive. Go to borderlesshealthinsurance.com to watch a short presentation on expat and digital nomad healthcare and sign up for a free consultation to review your options. Geopolitics and Empire needs funding. You can leave a donation, book a consultation, or become a member, which gets you access to my brief weekly commentary, a monthly newsletter of my thoughts, a private telegram, a monthly members group call, and my second premium broadcast called Dissident Thinker, where I conduct interviews and provide solo analysis. Dissident Thinker is also available on Rockfin and for supporters on Locals. Now, I'm just going to say, like, some of us fear that this is a totalitarian tiptoe, like two steps forward, one step back, and this is a temporary reprieve. Uh, you wrote Yet again, another stellar piece, uh, I think it was, was it earlier in this month, titled The Greater Good or A Grander Evil. And some key quotes for me include, quote, the age of COVID is increasingly being referred to as medical fascism because it embraced collectivist thinking. As with every collectivist regime in history, most of the terror was perpetu uh, perpetuated by ordinary people against each other. In serving the greater good, you are constructing a grander evil, one that once established will become inescapable, uh, end quote. And Again, I stress that, you know, yourself, myself, and the majority of listeners understand what COVID-1984 and the Great uh, Reset are all about. Um, and as I just said, you know, it feels some people are saying that they're just relaxing some of these biosecurity measures and that, um, you know, this just signals the end of round one of COVID-1984. <laughs> and we're seeing Absolutely. now like round two coming in the form of some sort of war, you know, <laughs> with Russia or Ukraine uh, and then a cyber pandemic. So, uh, you know, beyond Australia and Canada, what are your thoughts on where we're going with, you know, the Great Reset and COVID-1984? So absolutely. The biggest problem that we've seen and that COVID has revealed, and COVID didn't cause it, COVID highlighted it, the shift of Western democracies to embracing collectivist thought. Now, we've been doing that for a while. After all the cranky old communist losses in Europe, they all went to our universities and started indoctrinating our children. That's been happening for decades. Um, even my father's generation had some of those communists in there starting the process, and it's really ramped up as several generations have come through. And so the idea of collective guilt, which is the Black Lives Matter stuff, um, collective uh control of the environment for the uh, net zero climate change stuff. All this is you are responsible for things that you did not do because you belong to a certain group. That's collectivist. And so when we got COVID, it was instead of saying, China, thanks very much for that virus that you made, and then blaming the people who actually created it and who helped to cover it up, what we had instead was if you're not vaccinated, if you don't follow the rules, you are responsible for COVID, even if you haven't had it. Even if you had it and didn't take up a hospital bed, you are still part of the problem. That's collectivist thinking. And so while COVID had an end date, so they can't keep going on with COVID as the virus triples out. You can't, 
you I mean you can try propaganda but you can only lie for so long right well with things like climate change because there's no real apocalypse coming it is a dateless bargain with these people with these bureaucracies and so they can keep the collectivist vibe going and keep ramping up their systems of control for as long as they require it and until people stand up and go no this is garbage but because we don't have a, a real world application like the COVID virus petering out we have to actually come to that conclusion and put that conclusion out there to them basically um without being able to say yep see how this is not working like it's hard to point to an apocalypse that doesn't happen because they're saying it hasn't happened yet and we're like yeah because it doesn't exist it's much harder to prove a negative and that's the biggest problem that we have right now now in australia we are on the very edge of passing digital legislation which will it's it's part of the world economic forum's digital id um, the trusted digital identity and we are about to pass it now we've done some good work raising awareness that it's basically an extension of the COVID surveillance systems that we've had. Um, but it's taking Australia a while to wake up because we're politically disinterested. We're a bit worried after experiencing vaccine passports. We don't like it. We didn't like surveillance. That's one of the first things that we were requiring to be dropped. Um, but it's just getting the information out there that politicians are doing these things because people have no idea what's being passed in Parliament. They don't know. It's not, it's not um, highlighted. And so we're going to be in the danger of ending up with digital ID without anyone even really knowing it was happening. And then once it's there, that's what our fascist state will look like under digital fascism. And that's what I'm particularly concerned with. That That is actually my biggest concern as well. I'm always banging on about it uh, on this podcast. And there's people that are more, more optimistic and they tell me stop <laughs> being so pessimistic. And I'm, always, I'm frequently sharing my past guest, Senator Malcolm Roberts. Um, he's been speaking out about this very openly. And I share his work uh, on the social media and, and frequently bring him up because he's talking about the digital ID system. And and for me, it seems like if this gets It's, it seems like we're on the trajectory, like we're very, very close to having it put into place. And then once it's in place, it's like we're completely screwed. This is the worst um, authoritarianism ever in the history of the world. Like we literally won't. Our, he, he said himself that every aspect of our life will become a subscription service and that we literally won't be able to work, possibly leave our house, travel, buy food without the express permission of whoever has the their hands and the liver uh, you know of these systems both public private partnerships right corporations and the government so what are your thoughts on you know how bad this system would look like well it's also corrupt so the the digital identity legislation is obviously a project it's a government grant and a project now that government grant is going to a world economic forum partner and the person who is and they've already got Uh, government grants from us before to do stage one of the digital identity along with other uh, digital projects. And who is giving the grants to these World Economic Forum partner companies? But Greg Hunt, who used to be head of strategy at the, at the World Economic Forum. So we've got mates of mates giving these guys in these global bureaucracies uh, uh, deals to make a digital framework that will basically trap us for a World Economic Forum policy. So it's not even our own policy and we don't have anybody who is prepared to stand up and say, hang on, that sounds dodgy and to actually prevent it from happening because it's sold to us as safety. I don't know if you've noticed, but every piece of uh, fascist idea or collective ideas, it will keep you safe. So now I've got this idea uh, on all of our checkouts, we've got uh, don't use cash, 
use uh, tap and go to keep you safe, even though there has never been a single instance of COVID changing hands on cash. But we are told that cash is dangerous. You can't use cash. And um, when you, and then, of course, they go back through your bank accounts to see if you've been at a place where they're doing the COVID checks. They're using your bank accounts that they made you use to see where you've been and what you've been buying. Now, that, to me, is a huge red flag about what is to come in the future. Um, but with all of these digital identities, it's all about safety and speed. will make your life more convenient and more safe when what they're really doing is gathering uh, an entire profile of you as a human being which we all know that digital information is power. And the one thing you don't do is give the government all of your information in one place because they cannot help themselves. They have to use it. They are not a benign entity and they never have been. Yeah, you called it the digital darkness. Uh, I've recently been doing some interviews with great researchers on The Great Reset, uh, most recently Johnny Vedmore, Corey Morningstar, Michael Rechtenwald, and as well James Corbett. Uh, and there's a common thread that all of them have regarding the World Economic Forum is th that it's infiltrated all governments, literally uh, on the planet, including Russia and China to a degree. And, you know, sometimes it feels like we're watching a play uh, in, in a theater. Um, I may have asked you this. <laughs> Could in our they be any less dramatic? Could they be any less dramatic? I mean, you've got Klaus Schwab up there. He looks like a Bond villain. Well, no yeah, joke. Yeah. And like all of his little minions. They, yeah, they I, talk like those mad scientists. You go, how can you watch that and not think this is a problem? This is clearly a problem. <sighs> yeah, and, and and my point was that um, you know, it seems just just in the, over the past few days or a few weeks, there was that Joe Rogan podcast that blew up with this guy talking about all of this. Uh, and I'm seeing a lot of people say now they they've dug up how a huge portion of the Canadian uh, government are actually young global leaders, and so it's sort of like now coming out. Uh, all of this. And so, I mean, what are your thoughts, uh, whether uh, how deep the WEF's roots go and whether they really like have gotten to Russia and China, like every single nation or, um, or is it like falling apart? I mean, what, what are your thoughts? Okay. To be fair, I think Russia and China were a problem before the World Economic Forum set itself up. So, I mean, Russia and China have been in bed together uh, since the last couple of global conflicts. I mean, the board, they share that border along there. They've been playing in Asia for a long time. So I don't think that uh, Russia in particular or China are pets of the World Economic Forum. If anything, I think they see that as like an extension of their power. They might, they might lean on it like they do the UN, but I don't think the World Economic Forum caused Russia and China's problems. I think those entities were already well on their path before that, they're smarter than that. And if anything, I think Putin knows exactly what the World Economic Forum is and is happy to let it destroy the West with its little Marxist philosophies, and he pretty much would leave it alone and let it do that. Why not? Um, but as far as the West, we are extremely stupid. Like we should have learned our lesson with the UN, um, and everyone kept calling the World Economic Forum a conspiracy theory or almost like some novelty bureaucracy that it didn't matter. But when I first looked at it and I saw the list of businesses that were listed as partners, that's when I realised that we had a problem because it wasn't a small list. It was an extensive list and it was things like debt collectors, banks, um, infrastructure, mining operations, chemical companies. It was all the people who profit from making you poorer, from sending the world into a, a catastrophe these guys and their businesses are structured specifically to make a profit out of that. They don't profit from prosperity, which is a real worry. So when they say the World Economic Forum, oh, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy, 
that's because their entire partner list is sitting there ready to own all of your assets. And so they want you to believe that you losing everything you love dearly and have worked for is a good thing and will make you happy. It's a, a weird kind of uh, reverse psychology that's going on there. And we have to be really careful and say, no, um, take lessons from Rome. Back in the old days of democracy, the, the more powerful the Roman families were, it held the Senate to account. And if you don't have anybody with independent wealth who is separate from the state, then you have nothing to hold the state accounted for. So in a piece that I had just finished writing, I think the Vegas take, I pointed out, oh, no, it might have been for Spectator, I pointed out that the individuals like you and me, if we have money, if we have property, then we are less reliant on the state and the state cannot uh, manipulate our politics by throwing and waving cash at us because we go, we don't need that, your policy is terrible, we're just going to keep going. But when everyone's poor, when no one has anything, as soon as the state waves money around, they can get you to vote for anything. And that's how you get dictatorships in power that are popular, even though everyone's poor and miserable. And so I think you asked me what I think Russia's doing. I think Russia and China are focused on the big goal, which is to disempower the US, to disempower Europe, and to establish themselves as the new global powers. Before asking about Russia and China, uh, you were talking about how part of the uh, object of the great reset is to get rid of the small uh, small and independent businesses and middle class, which I think make up a large portion uh, of the working economy. And I was just speaking with someone from Europe, a friend who, I mean, I like them, I love them, but, you know, let's call them a normie. They don't believe into the, with, with this narrative. And I was trying to explain them all of this. And, and they're telling me, well, where I live in Europe, I'm not seeing you know, the businesses fail. I'm like, but what are you talking about? They're shut down, the restaurants and, you know, all these places, they're, they're lo losing money. Um, they live in a small town, but do you see them uh, advancing in the destruction uh, of the middle-class economy? Oh, it's been terrible in Australia. So one of the reasons why Australia is protesting, has been protesting quite hard during the pandemic, is we had an unusually high amount of small businesses. Like Australia, just because of the way that we started up, we were very much the entrepreneurs and we all had to pretty much build everything from the ground because we had a brand new continent, no, no um, established cities or anything that, you know, we used to live in. We had to build everything. And so I think it was more than 85% of all businesses in Australia are small independent businesses, not even medium businesses. And so when the government came through and shut everyone down and said, oh, coals always can open, but nobody else can, no one else can trade, well, we lost a huge amount of small and independent businesses, which means that individual people, voters, lost their life work. Um, and even businesses that did not shut down, they had to sack everyone. They might have closed their store and gone online, or maybe it's just the owners that are now working with one staff member or something like that. So the contraction as well has been substantial. Now, because that happened to us on such a scale, you can walk through, um, like I'm on the North Shore, I'm in a well-off area of Sydney. And I can go to the local Westfield, which has never been empty of shops, and, you know, maybe more than 30 stores are currently closed. That is not normal at all. Um, and it's if you go to Melbourne, where they had the longest lockdown in the world, their beautiful shopping strips, which they were famous for, are just for lease signs or for sale signs the whole way through. You cannot hide from what happened in Australia at all. And you cannot, you cannot even trick film it. It's so apparent. And because enough people know someone who was fired, who lost their job, or who killed themselves because they lost everything, that's a big problem down here. Um, the government can't lie about it. So we're well aware that the middle class has been wiped out. Um, 
Uh, and uh, so if in Europe it's not as apparent, here we saw the worst of it because our, our lockdowns were so much worse and our regulations were so much stricter. Um, so, yeah, we definitely copped the wiping out of the middle class and we're trying to grow back. We are really, Australia's amazing. We don't want to stop. We don't want to be conquered. We don't like big government. Um, and people have shifted shells and they are trying to start back up again. Right. I want to get back uh, on, on Russia. You know, a lot is happening Today, just before we connected for the interview, um, so much is happening. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has canceled his meeting with Lavrov because he says the Russian invasion has begun. The EU has sanctioned hundreds of members of the Russian Duma, I think 351. Well, um, and last month you wrote for The Spectator that Russia's strategy is chaos in order to destabilize the EU and NATO, which you kind of alluded to earlier. You say Russia is empire building. Uh, um, and again, you said that they want to weaken the U.S., and restore some semblance, I guess, of Russian empire. I've had guests on in the past. They give both pr perspectives. Uh, Jeff Nyquist, who's, who was saying that, you know, China and Russia are planning to take over the world and establish, you know, uh, communist world government still. And others that say, you know, uh, like I spoke to the Ron Paul Institute's executive director, Daniel McAdams, who said that, you know, Russia is that it's the West's fault that we overthrew Ukraine uh, and we want to join Ukraine into NATO, that which, you know, it's we're uh, ex existentially uh, threatening Russia. So, you know, what's your take on, on Ukraine and, and Russia? Okay, it's complicated. The first thing I'll just quickly deal with China. Um, China is more like Nazi Germany uh, than anything else. So they are an expansionist communist dictatorship and they don't realise that if they keep expanding, they will collapse. But they are determined to continue expanding across the world. Um, and their goal is to be the world's superpower and they will fail for exactly the same reason then, that uh, Hitler failed. But they'll work that out eventually. Russia is not as stupid as China. So Russia does not want China to be the world leader because you don't. Why would a Christian country who thinks itself as the as the inheritor of the empire allow a a godless communist dictatorship bent on complete world domination in bed with the Islamists all around the bottom of Russia to rule the world? They're not going to do it. What they want to do is they're letting China fight the US to disempower both of them. So they're going to keep egging China on until China ends up in a, in a war with the US, the Pacific, so that China weakens itself. That's what Russia is doing to China. And you can tell because of the way, um, if you watch and listen to what Russia actually says to China and what Russia actually does with China as far as refusing to sign certain treaties that make that give it uh, economic dominance, things like that, uh, Russia's pretty smart. It's, Russia is smarter than China in that respect, and they've been doing this with Europe for a lot longer. So while China's been or on its own for much of history, Russia knows how Europe works and Russia is playing both of them for fools, I'm pretty certain. Um, Russia is taking, Russia is basically what it always was. It is using ethnicity and pushing ethnic groups into areas to then claim that because Russian speakers are there, they have an entitlement to take it over and annex it, even if those places ran away from the USSR. And so all Russia is doing is justifying the invasion of neighbouring countries by claiming that they've got Russian affiliation, which is exactly what happened in the First World War with Germany when Germany said that area speaks German, therefore we're entitled to have it. It's ethnically German. It's no different. I mean, even China does that with Tibet. When they invaded Tibet, they said, oh, there's, there's ethnic Chinese there that's ethnically Chinese, and they just roll the tanks in. If these countries wanted to be part of Russia, they would have already been part of Russia. The fact that they are... They have to roll tanks in, tells you everything you need to know about Russia's conquest of its neighbours. It is by force. 
It is not a voluntary vote like the uh, the break of the British Empire. Russia is doing things because it wants the oil. I don't know how many people realise that Ukraine has the fourth largest uranium stockhouse in Europe. It's also one of the biggest deposits of um, rare earth materials required for renewables, and it has the largest oil, gas and other coal reserves there. So Russia's not stupid. It wants what Ukraine's got as far as natural resources go. Um, yeah, we as just... Far as, mm-hmm, go ahead. I was just going to say, as far as Europe goes, what I find is the case, like I get berated. Every time I write about what Russia's up to, you get abused, not by Russian bots, but by people in the West who confuse nostalgia about the old Christendom empire of what they think Russia was and what they think Russia is um, with what Putin and Putin's Russia actually is. So they had a point back when Russia was trying to westernize. That is true. That is when we should have embraced Russia in that short period of time where they decided to go away from communism and try and become West. That was when we should have done it. But Putin's Russia it's going to be just as bad as Stalin's Russia. And I think people need to stop confusing what they want Russia to be with what Russia actually is today. Not the people, but the leader and what and what Putin wants and what he's done. I was just going to add to what you said, that Russia has not been the wealthiest nation in history, but they seem to have always been the most resilient, uh, you know, withstanding the world wars. Uh, and I think it's it's in... And, <laughs> Who wants the, the, to invade Russia? It's frozen. Like, the, they've got the best thing, like... Who's going to invade there? Even Napoleon tried to get there. Like, it's cold. It's terrible. It's tough. So that's why Russia endures, because it's a difficult beast to conquer. So it just stays there. I, I know I'm going to get, as you said, I'm going to get a lot of listeners uh, hate for, for your perspective. But this is what we do at Geopolitics and Empire. I always want to hear. Everyone makes me think, you know, you're making me think. Uh, and so I, I like to listen to to everyone. And you mentioned before, you know, we were talking about digital darkness and the cyber pandemic, right? You wrote about that uh, last year uh, a lot. And I think it's today or, or tomorrow that Ukraine is going to disconnect its energy grid from from Russia and I think connect to the EU system. And I just feel like we're about to witness uh, the cyber pandemic in some form. Uh, I think it was some days ago, the Canadian Scotia Bank uh, went offline. You know, the apps weren't working. People couldn't get their money. And we're just seeing a higher quantity of cyber attacks and cyber disruptions and it feels like a build-up and then now there's this talk about just in the past few weeks you have all the main papers talking about ukraine and russia and us and cyber attacks and you know infrastructure and all of this what are your thoughts on going forward um the potential of a cyber pandemic what it might look like i don't think we're going to need a cyber pandemic for europe um what it doesn't matter what we think of Russia or if Russia's right or wrong. The problem that Europe has is that they did not prepare themselves to be able to hold ground against Russia. So that Russia knows very well that Europe can't do anything about what it's up to. It just can't. Uh, Europe allowed itself um, to be, uh, what do you call it, wooed by Chinese renewable energy and to disempower its own oil and gas reserves to shut them off, to shut down its nuclear power plants. And so it became energy dependent on Russia by pursuing Chinese renewables, hilariously. And so now Europe can't do anything about Russia because Russia can switch off the taps and can freeze Europe or can send Europe into blackouts. And it's going to take, it will take a war or a conflict of some kind for Europe to turn around and go, right, we need to we need to build our own power. We need to become energy efficient again. Um, otherwise, you have no geopower, uh, geopolitical power at all. If you can't keep the lights on, 
then you have no power on the global stage and it doesn't matter what your politics are or how right or wrong you are, you will be steamrolled over by an empire like Russia, which has all the oil and gas. That's the end. That's just reality. Um, and so with Australia, one of the things that I've been trying to impress upon people is even though we're an island, so we don't have gas pipelines coming to us like Europe does, and we are naturally resource rich. Like we have plenty of stuff. We could keep alive longer than the planet can live, but we haven't utilized it. So we've allowed China to own most of our energy grids. We have, we're still shutting down. We announced yesterday we're shutting down another coal plant early in New South Wales. So we are going to be almost entirely reliant on unreliable, expensive, renewable energy from China, despite having the largest uranium reserve in the world, which is insanity. Um, and we will have to learn the same lessons of Europe. We'll learn it in a different way, but we will learn the same lessons of Europe. And I think you'll see the West as part of this uh, massive global conflict. We will have to kickstart mining again. We will have to build power plants. And all this climate change, renewable stuff, is just going to vanish because it doesn't matter when survival of the nation, immediate survival is actually the priority. So I think people are going to learn that um, the politics we thought we knew and these big trending movements online don't really matter when push comes to shove when there are tanks and drones and belligerent nations like um, our communist brethren a lot of people yeah are, no are noticing if we look at the west as you outlined uh, europe and uh, the anglo-american sphere economic well we know socially speaking culturally but also economically and energy wise it's almost as if the west is committing collective suicide uh, you know germany all these countries turning off their coal plants and energy, you know, natural gas and, and all of this is like, I, I've seen many prominent uh, economic uh, commentators on Twitter talking about this, like, this is like, you're committing suicide. What, what are you doing? And then as well, many of my past guests, uh, military experts have been saying that in the conventional war, again, uh, NATO and, and Europe uh, against Russia uh, have lost. So that's kind of confirming what, what you're talking about, you know, unless we go to the nuclear threshold and then it's like rolling the dice, right? Um, uh, <laughs> well, the, the only, the only um, domestic uh, digital terrorist around in the world right now is uh, Trudeau freezing everyone's bank accounts for supporting um, political dissidents. I mean, he is by far the warning for digital technology of you know, if you handed those truck drivers cash, Trudeau couldn't do what he's doing right now. But uh, Trudeau is utilising the digital economy to to basically disempower his political rivals. Now, that is a concern. He's acting worse than, I mean, even China turned around and went, bro, bro, we, we, we didn't do that because uh, we'd be in trouble from the uh, international community. So uh, Trudeau's the lesson on how bad the digital apocalypse can be. He's showing us what would happen. Um, but you're talking about war and things and that Russia would probably win against Europe. The really interesting war and what everyone has to watch is Taiwan because what happens to China will determine what happens to Russia. And Taiwan is not an easy piece of ground to take. Everyone's pretty certain that it would require the largest naval activity in human history to take Taiwan, and it would cause significant damage to the Chinese power base to try and take it. Because not only, like uh, Japan's already said, they are going to intervene if, uh, if uh, China comes after Taiwan. Europe will have to intervene. America will have to intervene. And so I think that will be the war and then Russia will sit there and work out, great, you expend your energy over there as much as possible and then Russia will be left without being touched with a disempowered China and Europe at its beck and call um, with all of its energy crisis. That's what I suspect will happen.
Yeah, and, yeah. All of these are interlinked. I've had a number of past guests say that COVID nineteen eighty four and the Ukraine crisis uh, are the same thing. Uh, even Nayib Bukele, the president of El Salvador, said that. Uh, Alex Craner, my recent guest, and Daniel McAdams uh, as well. Um, and Japan, what you mentioned just over the weekend, I was commenting how now there's talk Japan is trying to uh, make the doctrine of preemptive strike. They were talking about. Um, Japan being able to launch preemptive strikes uh, on, you know, enemies within their vicinity. You seem, on, on one hand, very uh, optimistic. You were saying that people are, are in Australia are, are not letting go, and we see in, in Canada as well. Uh, you know, how optimistic are you that we're going to turn the tide in our favor, or that uh, all hell is going to break loose? It really depends upon the decisions of a few individuals, to be honest. I suspect that the World Economic Forum is much like the old royalty um, before the world wars took place. I think that they believe that they will be given power if they cozy up to uh, China and Russia. I genuinely think that they think they'll end up as kingmakers. And I suspect that their ideology, they have a more romantic view of their, oh, we can definitely rule the world, we can we can uh, own everything, it'll be fine and nothing bad will happen. I think they believe they can pull that off. But what's going to happen, of course, is their little side game, which China and Russia have been like, thanks for playing, that was wonderful, you helped us out a lot. The world economics mental game they played with um, the West has disempowered it. But I think that we can recover from that mental game and we already are because it is, it's, it's a game and you can only push people so far. What I worry about is as a result of what think places like the World Economic Forum did emotionally and um, uh, to the thinking of the West will impact the decisions that we make in the real war that we have to actually get right. So we have lines that if we if we miss them, we'll be in serious trouble. Like if no one defends Taiwan and China is allowed to empower itself, gain territory and not lose any military strength in doing so, then we've got problems because then we've got a, a powerful Russia and a powerful China. What we need to happen is we need China to expend a lot of its energy trying to move forward at this point in time before it tips over the balance into an unstoppable world force. And people don't realise, they go, oh, they don't want war and they won't come and touch us. It's like Germany last time. You can't let Germany keep rolling over and gaining ground because eventually it becomes too powerful. So um, if we muck up Taiwan and we don't fight for Taiwan, the world is going to look very different um, than it could. Uh, as for Europe, Russia, I think, learnt one lesson that uh, China didn't learn, and that's you can't control too many countries. So Russia wants to rebuild the USSR. No, no, no surprise there. But they don't want to own European countries. They want them to be subservient to Russia because at least Russia understands that they cannot rule the whole world. It doesn't work. They tried it a couple of times and they learnt. China thinks it can rule the whole world and they're going to be very wrong about that. No one can do it. Not Alexander the Great, not Xi Jinping. It's like a game of risk if you've ever played as your little empire expands. And <laughs> I need risk. to play that. <laughs> yeah, and you 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 find that at some point you only have enough you know troops reserves to back up one area, and then you leave another area too thin, and that's you know where things fall. But, um, but do you know why it doesn't work? Do you know why it doesn't work? Because human beings are tribal, so we are genetically programmed to go out and become diverse. That is actually our driving core of our human species, and so we will naturally become diverse even under a dictatorship. So even under global communist rule, we will fracture immediately and naturally rise up in different tribes. And you cannot stop that, not with any kind of philosophy. 
that is a biological drive. This, this kind of reminds me of one of my last questions. I always try to ask my guests, you know, how do we uh, continue to resist, uh, to fight back? And that breaking off what you just mentioned, a lot of people are talking about parallel structures, uh, economies. Um, so, you know, do you, have, do you have any thoughts on fighting back as well as surviving the Hunger Games? Well, look, even, even in Australia, right, we have a black economy. So when Australia tried to lock people out of locations with vaccine passports, they became furious because immediately a black economy started. People were trading goods and services for food they weren't allowed to buy or for products they weren't allowed to buy. Um, people were paying other people cash in hand to do jobs because they weren't actually allowed to work. I mean, they wonder why things like um, a hair studios started up in the middle of parks. Well, gee, I wonder if you don't let people work and they have nowhere to pay their bills and there's a demand for a service, you're going to get a black economy. Um, that's just how human beings work. We find a way. So governments have always had to be really careful that they they govern in a way that they they don't require people or don't push people into acting outside the government's view. Now, they mistakenly thought they could take hold of the government and to micromanage people and deny them things that they require. That doesn't happen. It's never happened, not in any regime. So I would warn the government that, if they want to recover economies, the worst you can do is keep punishing civilians. They have to lower their rules, bring everyone back into the fold. Otherwise, they will lose control and there will be entire black sections that they cannot uh, manage or even see. And they deserve it. They would absolutely deserve it. Oh, of course. And, you know, my, my friend James Guzman, a borderless blog, he recently gave a talk at Derek Rose's Greater Reset, a uh, 20-minute talk on agorism. So, you know, that's part of the answer, Black economies, uh, bartering parallel structures. Um, do you have any other thought that you wanted to bring up or, or final thought for us? Uh, my greatest concern is the uh, opinion that people are holding about Russia in the West. And I've come, like, I get abused. I'll get abused for this interview. The naivety about what Russia is, is going to be one of the biggest problems in the in the, the cultural wars to come. Because while people can recognise China as a threat and make sensible decisions about China, what we have are our own people saying, no, let Russia go, don't worry about Russia, whatever. So they're allowing Russia's conquest of the last remaining democracies, um, almost cheering them on because they think because Russia holds um, some conservative ideas about marriage or about um, sex and other um, economic principles that appeal to some conservatives, which has been denied under this sort of Marxist infiltration, they forget that no matter how um, reflective some parts of Russia regime may, may be to your ideals, the fundamental core, the communist core that is anti-freedom and, and anti-liberty is the most important part of Russia, and it overrules anything else you might like. You can fix Marxism infiltration. You cannot fix a communist system once you've got it. And people need to understand that while they're welcoming Russia, as soon as Russia arrives, it won't look like what they think it is at all. Yeah, this is this is fascinating, and I keep this also in the back of my mind. Some of what you're saying overlaps with my guest Jeffrey Nyquist, and I guess we'll see over time what happens but again i mean that's kind of my way of thinking on this podcast and i don't discard you know there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle and over time we see some pieces that we've thrown away like come back to life and oh well you know well as you're saying like we'll see but what happens you know <laughs> my final thought is don't let the government give you a license to live 
you know, you have a right to live. You don't require a license. That's my my final thought. Right. And uh, I will also add that you're one of our more uh, recent optimistic guests. So for listeners... Uh, <laughs> this was optimistic? This was optimistic? Wow. I've well, well no, I mean, you, you said all is not lost, like some of my... Uh, uh, past guests and so you know there there is some light at the end of the tunnel where, where are the best places to find and support your work uh you can find me on twitter um at ellie Melly. Uh, you can find my link to my blog up there where i post uh links to all of my stories obviously i am editor of the online spectators you can find me there i'm a rebel news journalist you can find me at rebel news in australia um, and I also write for publications like Good, House, uh, Good Source, Penthouse, and I'm writing for the Vegas Take now. So you can catch me uh, on Vegas Radio and uh, on the Vegas Take every other day. Yeah, I'm a big fan uh, of Rebel News uh, also, and I love your Twitter feed. I will include all of uh, those links in the, <laughs> in the description. So everyone follow <laughs> follow Alexandra Marshall. And thank you for being back on Geopolitics and Empire. And may the odds uh, be ever in your favor. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. It was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.